everybody, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm going to be talking about the 27 Club, which has always fascinated me. I think it's really interesting to see that there's like a whole list of people from as far back as the 1960s and even further back than that, that have seemingly died around the age of 27. I mean, what makes the age 27 so particular for a lot of not only musicians, but like some actors, um, writers, poets, athletes, like any mainstream popular person to die at age 27. I just kind of found the 27 Club to be really interesting because, of course, like Kurt Cobain is like, I would say Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Amy Winehouse. Those are kind of like the faces of the 27 Club. And I think like they perpetuated what the 27 Club is like. And when they passed away, the mainstream media kind of like went with it and kind of like, especially when Kurt Cobain passed away, I feel like his death kind of like really amplified like the whole phenomenon of what the 27 Club is. So I thought today that I would give you a little bit of backstory into what the 27 Club is how it started, the cultural impact that it had, and some of the people that were participants in the 27 Club. Well, I shouldn't, I don't know if participants is the right word, but they are in the 27 Club. So for anyone that possibly maybe doesn't know what the 27 Club is, it basically is a club of people or a group of people, unfortunately, that contain popular musicians, artists, poets, or writers, actors, athletes, you know, you name it, anyone that's of high social standards, you know, famous people who pass away at the age of 27, often as a result of drug and alcohol abuse or other kind of violent means, like they were murdered, they committed suicide, they were in kind of a bad accident. They passed away from extremely troublesome deaths. They, it wasn't like a natural death. It was a very troubled death. That's kind of what marks the 27 Club, basically. And from my research into doing this episode on the 27 Club, I mean, obviously, a lot of people in the medical profession and scientists, they have done studies on, like, what does this all mean? Does, like, the age of 27 mean any significance, like, by the time you turn 27, does that mean that you have like a ticking time bomb waiting to explode? You know, what's going on here? Um, so a lot of people have said that there's no significance to the age of 27 that would significantly impact one's rate of death or not. But of course, people that are in the music industry or they're famous people, you know, fame exacerbates, I'd say, the rate of death. Basically, what that means is if you're in the spotlight, you're dealing with a lot of unwanted stress. And that has obviously an impact on your mental health, on your physical health, your emotional health. You know, some turn to drugs and alcohol to self-soothe, whatever else that they might do. So, of course, those things are already amplified in that person. So, by the age, let's say, of 27, they're already a ticking time bomb in their own bodies. That's kind of basically what the 27 Club is and what it means, in a sense. Again, it doesn't mean that the average person has to worry that when they turn 27, they're like, oh my god, am I going to be part of the 27 Club? Like, no, definitely not. It just so happens to be a coincidence that a lot of these famous people happen to die at the age of 27. 
that's all that it means. So now to kind of give a little bit more history into what the 27 Club is and who some of the members are. So Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and others all died at the age of 27 between 1969 and 1971. At the time, the coincidence gave rise to some comment, but it was not until Kurt Cobain's death in 1994 at age 27 that the idea of a 27 Club began to catch on in public perception. Blues musician Robert Johnson was actually one of the first primary examples in the music industry that has some fame still attached to his name that was part of the 27 Club, and I'll mention him in a moment. His story is so fascinating. So Charles Cross, he is a music biographer. He did some biographies for Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, and others. Um, He's done some research into the 27 Club, and he says that the growing importance of the media, internet, magazines, and TV, and the response to an interview from Kurt's mother were mostly responsible for the theories perpetuating this 27 Club. Um, Again, like some people can take it even as far as saying that it's a conspiracy theory, that some of them have killed themselves to join this elusive 27 club that it's purposeful or like there's just some weird like conspiracy going on here like you know how people can take things so far and it obviously isn't true but of course Kurt Cobain was one of the faces for a lot of kids growing up in the 90s and so when he passed away and especially when his mother Wendy made comment about the 27 club or alluding to it it kind of, again, pushed it very far. And of course, the press, they want to make money, right? So they put something together, too, and talked about the 27 Club, and they are perpetuating this whole thing. It's just just a nightmare. An excerpt from a statement that Kurt Cobain's mother, Wendy, made in Aberdeen, Washington, for the Daily World newspaper says, Now he's gone and joined that stupid club. I told him not to join that stupid club. Now I want to talk to you about the members, some of them, not all of them, but some of the members that really stood out to me the most. I really went far back because there were some that actually are in the 27 Club that are as early as the late 1800s, but they were musicians, like classical musicians, and they didn't have a lot of information about them that I could share. So I wanted to start with this man, Rupert Brooke. And he was an English poet known for his idealistic war sonnets written during the First World War. So he was born in 1888 and he died in 1915. He apparently was a very good looking man. He was very prolific in his writing. He was friends with a lot of people in England that were very well-known artists and poets in their own right. So he was friends with a lot of these people. He suffered from what was considered at the time an emotional crisis in 1912 due to the fact that he was bisexual. And of course, if you can imagine back then in the early 1900s in the turn of the century that if you were not a straight person and it came out that you were not a straight person, you would be persecuted. I mean, look at Oscar Wilde. That's a prime example. So he was dealing with his sexuality and it was starting to take an effect on him. He had a lot of girlfriends, but of course, you know, one could say that perhaps he was trying to appear normal or have a normal life and it was just too much for him to handle. So he suffered an emotional crisis and he had paranoia 
as well due to this, and one of his close friends was stepping in on his current girlfriend. So this caused him to separate from his friend group of like-minded poetry writers at this time, and he would take frequent rehabilitation trips to Germany after he suffered this nervous breakdown just to get away from everything. He was extremely prolific, like he was known back then as one of the best writers. Rupert's accomplished poetry gained many enthusiasts and followers, and he was taken up by Edward Marsh, who brought him to the attention of Winston Churchill. So Rupert was commissioned by Winston Churchill to join the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve as a temporary sub-lieutenant shortly after his 27th birthday, and he took part in the Royal Naval Division's Antwerp expedition in October of 1914. So unfortunately, this is when he would pass away, so Rupert sailed with the British Mediterranean Expeditionary Force on February 28, 1915. Basically, he got sick from a mosquito bite, and he developed sepsis, and he passed away. Very, very, very sad. So that's kind of one of the earliest examples. I just used him as an extremely early example that had a lot of substance to his story to kind of tell the 27 Club story. Now we're getting into Robert Leroy Johnson, or also known as just Robert Johnson. He is an extremely interesting person, and his story... He is one of the most influential blues musicians of this time, but also he inspired so many people that we know and love today. And without his music, I don't know where they would be today. It's very fascinating. So Robert was born on May 8th, 1911, and he passed away August 16th, 1938. He was an American blues musician and songwriter. His landmark recordings throughout this time in the late 30s displayed a combination of singing, guitar skills, and songwriting talent that has influenced later generations of music. So let's jump into his story. Robert was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. His mother, Julia, was married to a wealthy landowner named Charles Dodds, but his actual father is Noah Johnson. So he grew up for a decent part of his life not knowing who his real father was. Charles Dodds had been forced by a lynch mob to leave Hazelhurst, Mississippi, following a dispute with the wealthy white landowners. So they were ran out of their house. Julia left Hazelhurst with baby Robert in tow, and in less than two years, they as a family moved to Memphis. And after about nine years of living in Memphis and attending school there, the family then moved on to a plantation in Arkansas. It was here that his mother told him about who his real father was, and he adopted the last name Johnson going from here on out. And he used the last name Johnson on his marriage certificate to his then-wife, Virginia, whom unfortunately died in childbirth. Very unfortunate thing there. Virginia's surviving family has a weird superstition, if you will, around her death. So Virginia's surviving family said that her death was a divine punishment for Robert's decision to sing secular songs known then as selling your soul to the devil. And that's, I think, a very common thing, especially for back then in the South, right? Especially when you're a musician and you're singing blues music, because I think at the time you would want to sing gospel or a lot of these musicians that kind of stemmed from blues, they would sing gospel music, right? But he was like taking a different path from that. So, of course, 
a lot of these outsiders or people that didn't understand, they would just say, oh, he sold his soul to the devil. That's why his wife passed away in childbirth. It's like, okay, but do you really think that? Like, no, of course not. Researchers actually believed that Robert himself accepted that phrase of selling his soul to the devil as a description of his resolve to abandon the settled life of a husband and farmer to become a full-time blues musician. So he was fine with people saying, oh, you sold your soul to the devil to play your damn blues music. He's like, yeah, okay, I would rather play my devil music than go about living a life of a farmer and settling for that. So he said, peace out, I'm doing my career thing. Robert would spend the rest of his career walking around to various parts of Memphis and Arkansas as a blues musician, becoming friends with, at the time, some of the best blues guitarists. He would also travel around to places like Chicago, Texas, New York, Canada, Kentucky, and Indiana. In many places, he stayed with members of his large extended family or with um, female companions. We'll just say that. Robert was kind of a, how do I say this? He attracted a lot of female attention, okay? And he was very privy to that, and he kind of used that to his advantage, okay? Let's just say that. He was not settled down to one woman. He would kind of go around from woman to woman. We'll just say that. He never married again, but he formed some strong long-term relationships with women that he would see periodically throughout the years. And in other places, wherever he was traveling, he stayed with whatever woman he was able to seduce at his concerts. So when Robert arrived in a new town, he would play for tips on street corners or in front of the local barbershops or restaurants. Musical associates have said that in live performances, Robert often didn't focus on his dark and complex original compositions, but instead pleased audiences by performing more well-known pop songs of the time. So he wouldn't always sing blues music. He would play whatever the audience wanted him to play as well. He would take requests, if you will. And he had a keen ability of picking up tunes at just hearing it for the first time and then relaying it back. So he was a very quick learner. He had no trouble giving his audiences whatever they wanted. So he was very popular amongst everybody. People around him have said that he was well-mannered, he was soft-spoken, and he was indecipherable. As for his character, everyone seems to agree that while he was pleasant and outgoing in public, in private he was reserved and liked to go on his own way. Musicians who knew Robert testified that he was a nice guy and fairly average, except, of course, for his musical talent. His weakness for whiskey and women and his commitment to the road were also things to note of his personality. In Jackson, Mississippi, around 1936, Robert sought out H.C. Spear, who at the time was running a general store and also acted as a talent scout for other musicians in the area. H.C. Spear put Robert in touch with a man named Ernie Ertl, who, as a salesman, for the ARC group of labels introduced Robert to another man <laughs> named Don Law, and he was the higher-up executive, right? So now he was getting officially on board with recording his music for the very first time. So the recording sessions were held on November the 23rd through the 25th, 1936 in San Antonio, Texas. He then traveled to Dallas, Texas for another recording session in a makeshift studio, at what is known as Vitagraph, who was like a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. He did this on June the 19th through the 20th in 1937. 
He recorded almost half of the 29 songs that made up his entire discography in Dallas, and 11 records from this session were released within the following year in 1938. He was doing a lot. He had a lot of his music that he would just play to patrons on the street, to people in bars or pubs, wherever he could get his word out there, his music out there. He recorded all of that, and that's all that we have of him, unfortunately, because he passed away soon later. He died on August 16, 1938, at 27, near Greenwood, Mississippi, of unknown causes. However, from what I'm going to explain to you shortly, it's, it's kind of a well-known theory, at least, that he was poisoned to death. But some people think that what contributed to his death was the fact that he had congenital syphilis. And syphilis is basically a sexually transmitted disease that killed you, especially we're talking back in like the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, like a lot of those people back then died of syphilis, okay? He had congenital syphilis, which basically meant that his mother must have had syphilis when she was pregnant with Robert, and obviously when she gave birth, she passed it on to him. So some people think that that contributed to his death, but based on oral history and based on kind of more... I don't want to say concrete evidence, but some people really do genuinely believe that he was poisoned to death. So Robert had been playing for a few weeks at a country dance in a town about 15 miles from Greenwood, Mississippi. And according to one theory, Robert was murdered by the jealous husband of a woman that he was flirting with at the time. In an account by the blues musician Sonny Williamson, Robert had been flirting with a married woman at this dance, and she gave him a bottle of whiskey poisoned by her husband. So it's almost like they were working in cahoots with each other, like the couple was trying to take him out, you know what I mean? So, and of course, he had an affinity for whiskey and drink, right? So Robert said, okay, sure. So he took the bottle, and Sonny Williamson said that when he saw Robert just take this opened bottle of whiskey, he knocked it right out of Robert's hand and said, don't you ever drink from a bottle that you hadn't personally see be opened, which obviously that makes sense. You see that today. Like you don't just take a drink from someone you don't really know. Like you watch the drink being made. You know what I'm saying? It makes sense. Robert was apparently not very happy that he slapped the bottle out of his hand and said, don't knock a bottle out of my hand ever again. So soon after this, he was offered again another poisoned bottle of whiskey and Robert again accepted this bottle of whiskey. Robert is reported to have began feeling ill the evening after and had to be helped back to his room in the early morning hours. Unfortunately, over the next three days, his condition steadily worsened and witness reports claimed that he died in a convulsive state of severe pain. Which, if that is true, that is very, very, very sad and tragic. According to a musicologist named Robert McCormick, he claimed to have tracked down the man who apparently murdered Robert, and he apparently said that he claimed or has obtained a confession from this man in a personal interview, but Robert McCormick said that he declined to reveal the man's name. So if he did die by being poisoned by this horrible person, then we will never hear his words, unfortunately. But regardless, he passed away at age 27. So this is the fascinating part. I genuinely did not know how deep Robert Johnson's influence was over a lot of these famous guitarists that we know and love today. 
Eric Clapton, for example, he's one. He says that Robert Johnson, to me, is one of the most important blues musician who ever lived. Clapton recorded several of Robert's songs, as well as the entire tribute album, Me and Mr. Johnson, in 2004. Bob Dylan also was inspired. That makes perfect sense, to be fair. Like, Bob Dylan is a country blues person. Bob Dylan said, In about 64-65, I probably used about five or six Robert Johnson blues song forms. Two, unconsciously, but more on the lyrical imagery side of things. If I hadn't heard the Robert Johnson record when I did, there probably would have been hundreds of lines of mine that would have been shut down, that I wouldn't have felt free enough or upraised enough to write. His code of language was like nothing I'd ever heard before or since. Robert Plant had this to say about him. A lot of English musicians were very fired up by Robert Johnson, to whom we all owe more or less our existence, I guess in some way. Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones said this, I've never heard anybody before or since use the blues form and bend it so much to make it work for himself. He came out with such compelling themes and just the way they were treated, apart from the music in the performance, was appealing. And Johnny Winter, who is the brother of Edgar Winter, who is a very famous guitarist, said this, Robert Johnson knocked me out. He was a genius. He and Sunhouse were both big influences on my acoustic side playing. Absolutely massive shout out to Robert Johnson for everything that he did. He lived a very short life, but he achieved so much in his life. Now let's move on to Brian Jones, who is one of the founding members of the Rolling Stones. So Brian Jones was born Louis Brian Hopkins Jones in February 28th of 1942 when he passed away on July 3rd, 1969. He was an English multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, best known as the founder and original leader of the Rolling Stones. Both of Brian's parents were interested in music. His father was a piano teacher and his mother played piano and organ as well and led the choir at their local church. Brian apparently listened to classical music as a child, but he mostly preferred blues. Brian persuaded his parents to buy him a saxophone and two years later, his parents gave him his first acoustic guitar as a 17th birthday present. That's pretty funny. Like, hey, I would really appreciate a saxophone from you guys, thanks. But then they just gave him a guitar. Brian began performing with his new guitar at local blues and jazz clubs while busking and working odd jobs to get some money. Between 1959 and 1961, Brian fathered three children by three different baby mamas. He was really working the rounds, as, uh, as I will say. <laughs> yeah, three different kids by three different baby mamas. The first baby mama was his girlfriend at the time when they were both 17. He encouraged her to get an abortion, but she kept the pregnancy and she gave the baby up for adoption. The second one was a one-night stand with a woman that he met at a concert. Her family raised the baby and Brian never knew that she was pregnant to begin with. The third of which was his more longtime girlfriend, Pat, whom he helped to raise the baby as he was getting into the Rolling Stones. He apparently sold his record collection for some money so the baby could have clothes. But I think as per the time, especially with the Beatles when this happened with John Lennon and his baby Julian with his wife Cynthia... Like, the Stones manager made sure to tell Brian, like, you can't be seen by the public or the press with your wife or your baby. You just can't. 
because of course you want to keep up the image that these musicians are single and to the fans like oh they're single and i can attain them like kind of charade it's stupid but that's what they were perpetuating to these people so brian obviously couldn't really see his kid a lot or be out in public with his kid and wife it just is very unfortunate Pat noticed that Brian slowly started to drift away from family once the band got famous, and that is, again, in line with what John Lennon did with his own first child as well. Just going to show that these people are all kind of the same in some aspect when it comes to that stuff. And in 1963, he had a child with his fourth baby mama, Linda Lawrence. They had a son together named Julian, but Linda soon married singer Donovan, and together they ended up raising the child, so... So Brian placed an advertisement in the Jazz News publication on the 2nd of May 1962, inviting musicians to audition for a new R&B group at the Bricklayers Arms Pub. Pianist Ian Stewart was the first to respond to his advertisement, and then later, Mick Jagger also joined the band. Mick Jagger and his friend Keith Richards had met Brian previously, when he and Paul Jones were playing Elmore James' Dust My Broom at the Ealing Jazz Club. As Keith Richards tells it, Brian came up with the name for the band The Rolling Stones while on the phone with a venue owner. The person on the other end said, great, let's put you on the bill. What's your name, by the way? Like, what is your band called? And so, oh my gosh, Brian had to scramble at that very second to come up with a name because they hadn't come up with a name yet. So Brian was looking directly at his record collection while on the phone with this venue owner, and he saw The Best of Muddy Waters, which was an album he really enjoyed, and he narrowed in on one of the tracks on that album called Rolling Stone Blues, and so he said, we're the Rolling Stones. So of course, perfect, it fit. And they played their first gig on July the 12th, 1962 at the Marquee Club in London. So like I kind of mentioned before, Brian was a gifted multi-instrumentalist. He was proficient on a wide variety of musical instruments. Prior to him leaving the group in 1969, Brian typically played all of the instruments in the music which deviated from standard rock setup of drums, guitars, pianos, and bass. While acting as well as the band's business manager, Brian received five pounds more than the other members because he thought to himself, well, I'm playing most of the instruments and I'm acting as the business manager, so why don't I get a little bit more in my paycheck every week? And the rest of the band were really not happy with this. Like, why is he taking five pounds more from our cut? Which, at the time, that was a lot of money because in today's money, five pounds then is 107 pounds now. So, you know, that's a decent amount of money that he was scraping from their residuals. You know what I mean? The rest of the band were starting to resent him, and it created a whole issue from that point on. Keith Richards had said that both he and Mick were surprised to learn that Brian considered himself the leader of the band, and he was receiving the extra five pounds. Well, you can only imagine how it must have went down when the band eventually got Andrew Oldham as their manager, because Brian then started to feel alienated. Like, well, I was once the band manager. Why does this guy have to come in and do my job? And now I can't make the extra five pounds in my paycheck. What's up with this? So according to Andrew Oldham, Brian was very emotional and felt alienated because he was not a prolific songwriter, as was Mick Jagger and Keith Richards in some respect. And his management role had been obviously taken away. 
so he was very unhappy with this choice. And to make matters worse, he was dating at the time Anita Pallenberg, who was dating him for two years, but then she left him for Keith Richards when Brian was hospitalized during a trip to Morocco. So unfortunately, ooh, Anita just sideswept him and went right to Keith Richards. But from what I've heard, Brian wasn't so nice to Anita, and she went for Keith. So I can't really blame her for that. I'm just saying that this further damaged the already strained relations between Keith Richards and Brian and everybody else. So as tensions were starting to rise and Brian's substance abuse started to increase as well, the musical contributions that he made to the band became very sporadic. He became bored with the guitar and sought to play exotic instruments instead, and he was increasingly absent from recording sessions. Apparently, Brian's last substantial recording sessions that he would be with the Rolling Stones happened in the spring and summer of 68 when they produced Jumpin' Jack Flash and the Beggar's Banquet album. Brian's legal troubles, his estrangement from the rest of the band, his drug abuse, and his mood swings became too much of an obstacle to his active participation in the band, so they decided that they would eventually kick him out. And this did not have a great effect on Brian Jones. I think he succumbed to the darkness that was kind of slowly but surely overtaking him. And he was replaced by the then 20-year-old Mick Taylor. So he was already 27. You can imagine bringing someone in who was seven years your junior to replace you in the band. That that must have been quite a sting. So, fast forwarding just a little bit in time here, at around midnight on the night of the 2nd through the 3rd, most people think it's the 3rd, like early morning, kind of, in July 1969, Brian was discovered motionless at the bottom of his swimming pool in Kochford Farm. His then-Swedish girlfriend, Anna, was convinced that he was alive when he was taken out of the pool, insisting that he still had a pulse. However, by the time the doctors arrived, it was too late and he was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital at age 27. The coroner's report stated that it was drowning and it was later clarified that his death was, quote, death by misadventure and noted that his liver and heart were greatly enlarged due to past drug and alcohol abuse. So, of course, that makes sense. Some people think, well, his heart just gave out and he just fell and drowned in his pool. So, Brian Jones was buried at, at Cheltenham Cemetery to prevent people from, like, coming and trying to, like, rob his grave, you know what I'm saying? So, what's weird is Charlie Watts and Wyman were the only ones who attended the funeral. Mick Jagger and Marion Faithful and Keith Richards did not show up. Very interesting. When asked if he felt guilty about Brian's death, Mick Jagger told Rolling Stone in 1995, No, I don't really. I do feel that I behaved in a very childish way, but we were very young, and in some ways we picked on him, but unfortunately, he made himself a target for it. He was very, very jealous, very difficult, very manipulative, and if you do that in this kind of group of people, you get back as good as you give, to be honest. I wasn't understanding enough about his drug addiction. No one seemed to know much about drug addiction. Things like LSD were all new. No one knew the harm. People thought cocaine was good for you. And then the bassist Bill Wyman said of Brian, He formed the band. He chose the members. He named the band. He chose the music we played. He got us gigs. He was very influential, very important, and then slowly lost it. 
highly intelligent and just kind of wasted it and blew it all away. So a lot of conspiracy theories started to swirl around Brian's death, right? People thinking that he was murdered. And of course, this is like kind of somewhat, somewhat a running theory with some of the people in this list. Like their deaths aren't really what they say it is. Like there's a big question mark around it. Brian is one of those people in the group where his death has a big question mark on it. In 1993, it was reported that Brian was murdered by Frank Thorogood, who was a builder doing construction work on Brian's property. Apparently, Frank Thorogood was the last person to see Brian alive. Frank allegedly confessed the murder to the Rolling Stones driver Tom Keylock, who later denied this, weirdly enough. This theory, though, was dramatized in a film called Stoned in 2005. So, of course, it made the papers, it made even a film out of it. Like, it just got too crazy. Frank is alleged to have killed Brian in a fight over money. He apparently said that he had been paid 18,000 pounds for work on Crotchford Farm, but he wanted another 6,000 from Brian. Well, you can understand what happened there. He killed him to cover up all the transactions and all that stuff, right? I think possibly you can consider what you want from this, but just to put a little bit of a nail in the coffin here. Later in August of 2009, Sussex police decided to conduct a case review of Brian's death for the first time since 1969 after new evidence was handed to them by Scott Jones, who was an investigative journalist who had traced many of the people who were at Brian's house the night that he died. The journalist also uncovered unseen police files held at the National Archives. And a year later in 2010, after their review of the case, police stated it would not be reopening the case because they asserted that basically it was already thoroughly reviewed and there was no new evidence to suggest that the original verdict of death by misadventure was incorrect. I mean, personally, just from my own opinion, it's not too hard to imagine that his heart gave out due to the stress, due to his drug and alcohol abuse, and he just gave out one day. Unfortunately, he fell into his pool and he couldn't get himself up and he drowned. I think genuinely that's very plausible, but make of his death what you will. So now we're going to move on to Jimi Hendrix. Now, I've already done a very thorough, in-depth episode of Jimi Hendrix and his story. So just in this episode today, I'm just going to do a very stripped-back review of his death. So Jimi Hendrix was born Johnny Allen Hendrix on the 27th of November, 1942, and he passed away September 18th, 1970. He was an American musician, singer, and songwriter. Although his mainstream career spanned only four years, he is widely regarded as one of the most influential guitarists in history. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame describes him as arguably the greatest instrumentalist in the history of rock music. So we're just going to talk about his death at this point. So details of Jimmy's last day alive kind of are a bit confusing and a bit muddy and a little bit unclear, but... Basically, what we know is he spent much of September the 17th with his friend Monica, well, his girlfriend really, in London. They were at a party with friends, and she was the only witness to his final hours in terms of like literally the final hours. But they were at a public party the day, kind of night, leading up to his death. 
So they were at a party. They got kind of somewhat into a little bit of an argument. They came home early and they went into bed. Monica said that she prepared a meal for them at her apartment around 11 p.m. when they shared then a bottle of wine. So she then drove him to the residence of an acquaintance at approximately 1.45 in the morning, where he remained there for about an hour before she picked him up and drove them back to her flat at 3 a.m. So they were hanging with friends, they were eating, they were drinking, they were hanging out, and then they were finally driving back to her place at 3 in the morning. She said that they talked until about 7 in the morning when they went to sleep around that time. So not long goes by where Monica woke at 11 a.m. and she found Jimmy breathing but unconscious. So she called for an ambulance. 18 minutes later, paramedics transported Jimmy to the St. Mary Abbott's Hospital where he was pronounced dead at 12.45 p.m. on September the 18th. So the coroner that was assigned to his post-mortem examination concluded that Jimmy uh, choked on his own vomit and died of asphyxia while intoxicated with barbiturates, citing insufficient evidence of the circumstances. He declared an open verdict, basically being like, well, he kind of died taking a lot of drugs and alcohol combined. He must have woken up, choked on his own vomit, and couldn't breathe again, and then he died. That's basically kind of what that would also indicate there. So it was also revealed that Jimmy had taken nine of Monica's prescribed Vesperox, Vesperox <laughs> sleeping tablets. I'm sorry. I'm so bad with pronouncing things. So apparently this is 18 times the recommended dosage. Could this have just been an accident? Like, oh, I take maybe five of these or something. Let me just pop a bunch in my mouth and I'll be fine. Kind of like not really caring too much about the dosage, just like taking a bunch of them, you know, whatever. Presumably, maybe he couldn't sleep, right? Maybe he had insomnia in some aspect and he needed to sleep, so he just took a bunch, not really counting how many pills he was taking, just popped them in his mouth, drank a bit of wine or something and went to sleep. It could be as simple as that. And his death has always been kind of shrouded in a bit of sadness as well, because he was very young. He only had four years in the music industry, but he made such a major impact on so many people. And again, if you want to know more about his life, I have another episode talking about him. Now I'm going to jump into Janis Joplin. So I might do a more in-depth episode of Janis Joplin in the future. So I didn't go too in-depth on her story here just because I wanted to get a decent amount of information, but I'm going to leave some of it out for a future episode. So Janis Joplin was born on January 19th, 1943 and died on October the 4th, 1970. She was an American singer-songwriter who sang rock, soul, and blues, and she's one of the most successful and widely known rock stars of her time. Janice was born in Port Arthur, Texas, to parents Dorothy and Seth. Her parents felt that Janice needed more attention than their other children. As a teenager, Janice befriended a group of so-called outcasts, who one of them had albums by a lot of blues artists. Particularly, she noted that this friend of hers had blues albums of Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, and Lead Belly, and she was totally on board with this. She absolutely adored blues music, and she really took to blues. Janice cultivated a very rebellious way about her, and she styled herself partly after her female blues heroines and partly after beat poets of the time. A little different, of course, in her later years, she was a bit of a hippie. 
So she decided to leave Texas in January of 1963 as she says she wanted to get away from things because her head was in a different place. She just wanted to escape, basically. So she left Texas and she hitchhiked with her friend Chet Helms to North Beach, San Francisco. And she was there for some time. A year later in 64, while still in San Francisco, Janice met future Jefferson Airplane guitarist Jorma Kakonen. And I hope I said that right as well. So she met up with Jorma, who's the guitarist for Jefferson Airplane, and they recorded a number of blues songs together. She was arrested while in San Francisco for shoplifting. And during the two years that followed, her drug use had increased and she acquired a reputation as a speed freak and occasional heroin user. She also reportedly used other psychoactive drugs like LSD and shrooms. And she was a heavy drinker throughout her career. Like she loved the bottle. She loved to drink and she loved her drugs, basically. In May of 1965, Janice's friends in San Francisco, noticing the effects on her from regularly using meth, told her to return to Port Arthur, Texas to have a normal life and go back with her family. During May in that time, her friends threw her a bus fare party so she could return to her parents in Texas so she would have money to go back. And eventually she did in the spring of that year in 65, she went back to her family after Janice's parents noticed her weight, which was 88 pounds, severely emaciated, she ended up changing her lifestyle, pretty much avoiding drugs and alcohol at this point in time. She adopted a very different hairdo, which at the time was like a beehive hairdo, very fashionable at the time. And she enrolled as an anthropology major at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. Very interesting. Janice then became engaged to a man named Peter DeBlanc in the fall of 1965, and she was kind of starting a relationship with him toward the end of her first time in San Francisco. So after she had then majored in Lamar University, she was hanging out with Peter DeBlanc, she then moved to New York where she began working a job with IBM on their computers. Can you believe that? IBM. They're massive. They're hugely massive. I think that's so fascinating. Peter visited her to ask her father for her hand in marriage at this time. And things were looking good for her. Like she was engaged. She had a really nice job in New York. Like she was so excited about the wedding. Her and her mother were planning everything. Like she was really excited. But unfortunately, Peter ended the engagement soon afterward. There wasn't really a reason for this that I could see. Unfortunately, he just said, peace out, I'm out, bye, see you never. And Janice then was really going through an extremely difficult time. Between 65 and 66, she had sessions with a psychiatric social worker to talk about a lot of things that she was coping with. What's really sad about Janice was she was actually asking her psychiatrist how she could pursue a career in music without succumbing to drugs. She was genuinely very concerned about this because she knew that she had preference to drugs and that she had a proclivity to it. And she was scared that she wouldn't be able to have a career without falling in the deep end with drugs. So she was confused about this. She was asking her psychiatrist like for help and guidance throughout this point in her life because she was very, very, very confused. Um, unfortunately, just poor Janice was going through it. Um, and again, I'm not going to talk a lot about her because I'm going to save her for another episode. But of course, she went on to be one of the biggest female artists of the time. She was very prolific with Woodstock. She was there at Woodstock. She performed there. 
Like she was so big and so massive and she has a very unique raspy voice that people know and love her for. So she became very successful. But unfortunately, on the evening of October the 4th, 1970, Janice was found dead on the floor of her room at the Landmark Motor Hotel by her road manager, John Cook. So alcohol was present in the room and newspapers reported that no other drugs were present. But this is going to be a catch-22 in a second. According to a book authored by Joseph DeMona and Los Angeles County Coroner Thomas Noguchi, evidence of drugs was removed from the scene by a friend of Janice. And it was later put back after the person, the friend that took the drugs, realized that her autopsy was going to show that she possibly died of drug overdose. It's a weird thing to do, right? Why would a person take evidence from a case knowingly? Um, It's strange, but in this book, the coroner, Thomas Noguchi, he said that in other drug overdoses that he investigated in LA, he said that friends of the deceased believed that they were doing favors for the person that passed away by removing evidence of drugs. And then they thought things over and then returned the evidence back to the crime scene, which is strange. Of course, it's very strange. It's very weird. Why would they do this anyway? But they thought that they were helping and they clearly weren't helping in the situation. But Thomas Noguchi himself performed an autopsy on Janice and determined that her cause of death was by a heroin overdose, possibly compounded by alcohol. So her friend and road manager, John Cook, believed that Janice had been given heroin that was much more potent than what she and other users in LA at the time were used to. The drug dealer is responsible for that because it's assumed that she probably took her normal dosage anyway. But regardless, it's very unfortunate she passed away like that. So now we're going to move into the very eclectic, very interesting persona of Jim Morrison. He's a really interesting character. He's very aloof of a person to nail down, to be honest. Like, he's very weird. He's very enigmatic. But he's really interesting. So Jim Morrison was born James Douglas Morrison on the 8th of December, 1943, and he passed away on July the 3rd, 1971. He was an American singer, poet, and songwriter who was the lead vocalist of The Doors. Due to his wild personality, his poetic lyrics, and his very distinctive voice, and also, of course, his very unpredictable and erratic performances, and the circumstances surrounding his death, Jim is regarded by music critics and fans as one of the most iconic and influential frontmen in rock history. So... What's kind of interesting about Jim is he was born into a military family. He was born in Melbourne, Florida to Mother Clara, and his father was Lieutenant George Morrison, who would be a future rear admiral in the U.S. Navy. In 1947, when he was three to four years old, Jim allegedly witnessed a car crash in the desert, which... At this car crash, a truck overturned and some Native Americans were lying injured at the side of the road. Jim referred to this incident in the song Peace Frog on the Doors' 70 album Morrison Hotel, as well as in spoken word poems that he would do as well. 
Jim believed that this car accident was the most formative event of his life, and he made repeated references to it in his songs, poems, interviews, like everywhere all the time. Like he was fascinated by this. He could not get enough of this. It was like ingrained in his memory as a young child. Crazy, craziness. And of course, like I briefly mentioned, Jim is a very poetic kind of person. He would write poetry, but then he would take that poetry and actually create songs out of it. So he was inspired by the writings of several philosophers and poets. Some of his influences were Arthur Rimbaud, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Charles Baudelaire, Franz Kafka, Albert Camus, and others. Jim went to live with his paternal grandparents in Clearwater, Florida, and attended Petersburg Junior College. In 1962, he transferred to Florida State University in Tallahassee. While there, Jim was arrested for disturbing the peace while drunk at a home football game on September the 28th, 1963. And this is one of the mugshots of him that became very famous. There's, I think, two, if I'm not mistaken. There's one of him later with a thick beard and the long hair, but there's another one of him where he's younger. That is the mugshot that I'm talking about. If you're familiar, you'll know what I'm talking about, but that is a very famous mugshot of him. A year later, Jim moved to LA to attend UCLA, and in the middle of 1965, after graduating UCLA with a bachelor's degree, Jim led a very bohemian lifestyle in Venice Beach. He lived on the rooftop of a building that was lived in by his old friend. He wrote the lyrics to a lot of his early songs for The Doors at this place, and he would later perform live and record on albums such as Moonlight Drive, Hello, I Love You, and others. And according to band member Ray Manzarek, he lived on canned beans and LSD for several months. That is the least surprising thing about Jim Morrison that I think I've ever heard in my life. Jim was inspired to name the band after the title of Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception, which this was a reference to unlocking of doors of perception through psychedelic drugs, obviously. Of course, what else would it be? In November 1966, Jim and the Doors produced a promotional film for their song Break On Through to the Other Side, which was their first single ever of all time. The Doors achieved national recognition after signing with Elektra Records in 67. Their single Light My Fire spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in July, August of 67. This was really very different from The Doors beforehand where they opened for bands like Simon and Garfunkel and they also played at high school shows and things like that, like literally the year prior to this. So can you imagine? The Doors also appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show and this became extremely famous for the sole purpose of Ed Sullivan requested only two songs of The Doors for this performance on his TV show. People are strange and light my fire. Now, if you recall, one of the lyrics to light my fire is, girl, we couldn't get much higher. And Ed Sullivan was like, you know, can we not have that lyric in there? Can we instead change it to, girl, we couldn't get much better instead? Let's keep it PG for the fans. And Jim was like, oh yeah, Ed, don't even worry about it. We have got it totally under control. And what did you think they did on live television? They sang their song with their original lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. And Ed Sullivan was pissed. He was like, 
I don't want these doors ever again, ever on the Ed Sullivan Show. They are banned. They can never come back. Jim was like, hey, man, we just did the Ed Sullivan Show. We don't need to be on your program. Peace out. We will never see you again. Bye. So the doors will go on to record a lot of studio albums, very, very, very famous studio albums. And by early 1969, Jim had started to gain some weight and then he started to grow a beard. He began dressing a lot more casually because if you can imagine him before, he would dress in very flouncy t-shirts or not t-shirts, but blouses, you know, and he would wear his leather pants and his concho belts. You know, he was very slim, but then he started to gain weight And then he started to wear, you know, loose t-shirts and jeans. Crazy. Like the difference between the gym before and the gym now. And then Jim as well, his personality was starting to shift a lot. There was a very famous incident during a concert on March the 1st at the Dinner Key Auditorium in Miami, where apparently Jim attempted to incite a riot within the audience. And then three days later, six warrants for his arrest were issued by the Dade County Police Department for indecent exposure. I mean, you can believe that if you want. None of us were there to witness that. At least I imagine so. Um, So we don't know if that's true or not, but he was arrested for it regardless because Jim Morrison, I guess, wanted to show everybody his bits and pieces. But okay, whatever, you know, <laughs> okay. On December the 8th, 2010, what's really funny is the Florida governor and the state clemency board unanimously signed a posthumous pardon for Jim because a lot of people denied the notion that Jim ever exposed himself on stage that night, so they pardoned him. Crazy. Isn't it just crazy what they'll do for, like, a bit of, like, fame or a crazy story in the paper? Isn't it just wild? But that's just to set the precedent for, like, how Jim's behavior started to really take a left turn. So after a lengthy break following the album The Soft Parade, the group reconvened in October 1970 to record their final album with Jim called LA Woman. And after recording this album, Jim announced to the band that he wanted to go to Paris with his girlfriend Pamela Corson and just spend some time away from everybody and everything. He was like done with it. He wanted to get like back to source. You know, he wanted to get away from it all. His bandmates thought that this was a great idea. Like, sure, maybe he'll lose a bit of weight and get back to the gym that we knew before. It sounds like a great idea. You know, he'll be with his loving girlfriend. What could possibly go wrong? Well, everything goes wrong, unfortunately. In March 1971, Jim joined his girlfriend Pamela Corson in Paris at an apartment that she had rented for the two of them. In letters to friends, Jim described going for long walks throughout the city alone. And during this time, he shaved his beard and lost some of the weight he had gained in the previous month. So that was good. On July the 3rd, 1971, Jim was found dead in the bathtub of the apartment at approximately 6 a.m. by his girlfriend, Pam. The official cause of death for him was listed as heart failure, although no autopsy was performed because it was not required by French law, which I think was probably the worst thing that could have happened for him that he died in Paris because of this law, because we really don't know what happened. And that's the thing about Jim Morrison's death is people still don't really know what he died from. It's also been reported by several people who say that they were eyewitnesses that day that his death was due to an accidental heroin overdose. And the sad thing about this is three years later, 
Pam Corson, his girlfriend, also died of a heroin overdose at the age of 27. Is that a coincidence? Hmm. That is Jim Morrison's story wrapped up nicely. Now we're moving on to the second last person I want to talk about, Kurt Cobain. I've done an episode of Nirvana, if you want to go listen to that. Um, But I'm not going to go too deep into the background of Kurt Cobain, just a little bit. And then we'll talk about his death. So Kurt Cobain was born Kurt Donald Cobain on February the 20th, 1967, and he passed away on April 5th, 1994. And of course, he is well known for being the singer and guitarist for the grunge band Nirvana. He is considered to be one of the most influential musicians in history of alternative rock music. Kurt was born at Grays Harbor Hospital in Aberdeen, Washington. He's the son of Wendy and Donald Cobain. Kurt was described as a happy and excitable child who was excited about life, and he exhibited sensitivity and care to everyone around him. His talent as an artist was very clear from an early age, and he would draw all over the place, everywhere. Everything he could get his hands on, he would draw things on. Kurt developed an interest in music at a young age as well, and according to his Aunt Mary, he began singing at the age of two. And by four, he started playing the piano and he started singing as well. He listened to artists including the Ramones and ELO, and from a young age, he would sing songs like Arlo Guthrie's Motorcycle Song, The Beatles' Hey Jude, Jerry Jack's Seasons in the Sun, and the theme song to the Monkees television show. On his 14th birthday, Cobain's uncle offered him either a bike or a used guitar, and Kurt, of course, chose the guitar. So soon he started to play anything and everything at any time of the day. When Kurt was nine, his parents divorced, and he would say that the divorce had a profound effect on his life, of course. So from this point on, the divorce was kind of the starting point to where his personality started to change, to being where he was a very loving, excitable, uh, nice, healthy young child, to them being very aloof being very um, easy to anger, temperamental, very agitated, and kind of very reclusive and depressed, let's just say that. So both of Kurt's parents found new partners after their divorce, and although his father had promised that he wouldn't remarry, he did. He married a woman named Jenny Westby. To Kurt's utter dismay, he hated this. For a short time, though, Kurt liked Jenny at first because she gave him the motherly attention that he was searching for, that his mother couldn't really give him. Kurt's own mother began dating a new man as well who was very abusive, and Kurt witnessed on various occasions this man physically abusing his mother, and this left him as well with a really bad impression, of course. Like, that would totally, totally tarnish any young child's developing brain, like 1,000%. During his second year in high school, Kurt began living with his mother in Aberdeen, Two weeks prior to his graduation, he dropped out, though, because he realized he didn't have enough credits to graduate. So his mother gave him an ultimatum, either find a job or leave the house. And then after one week, Kurt found his clothes and other things packed away in boxes for him to get out of the house. So feeling very banished and feeling alone, Kurt stayed with various friends, just kind of like couch surfing throughout Seattle. And he would occasionally sneak back into his mother's basement, even though, of course, she would hate that if she found out. Kurt also claims that he used to live under a bridge over the Wishka River in an experience that inspired the song Something in the Way, the very dark, somber song. Love that. 
So to kind of make a somewhat long story short about his musical career, Kurt was friends with Kurt Novoselic. They became a band together. They were in Fecal Matter, like a kind of joke band um, that they joined together. And then they eventually would form Nirvana with Chad Channing on drums. And they were to put out their first album, Bleach, but then they hired Dave Grohl to replace him for the remainder of their albums, Nevermind and In Utero. And of course, Nirvana is one of the most highly successful bands, grunge bands of all time. So I think we all know about Nirvana. I don't really need to go into detail about them. And again, if you want to know more detail, I have an episode of them if you want to hear it. So now we're going to talk about the circumstances surrounding his death. And I may or may not do an extended episode on his death at some point. It's very confusing and convoluted, but I might. If you're interested, let me know. But following a tour at the Terminal Eins in Munich, Germany on March 1st, 1994, Kurt was diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. He flew to Rome the next day for medical treatment and was joined there by his wife, horrid wife, Courtney Love. I'll say no more about her. So he flew to Rome on March 3rd, 1994. The following day, Courtney woke to find that Kurt had overdosed on a combination of champagne and rohypnol. Kurt was then rushed to the hospital and was unconscious for the rest of the day. After five days of being in a state of unconsciousness, Kurt was released and returned to Seattle. All's well that ends well, right? Mm, Well, on March 18th, Courtney phoned the Seattle police, informing them that Kurt was suicidal and locked himself in a room with a gun. But when police arrived, Kurt insisted that he was not suicidal and he actually locked himself away to hide from Courtney Love. So, sometime later, Courtney arranged an intervention. This intervention happened on March 25th, 1994. Kurt, at first, was very upset that they would form an intervention for his drug use. He was very upset that he locked himself in the upstairs bedroom of their house. But by the end of the day, Kurt did agree to go to a detox program. And he arrived at the Exodus Recovery Center in LA on the 30th of March. Staff members were apparently unaware of Kurt's previous history of depression and quote-unquote suicide attempts. Um, When he was visited by friends, they saw no indication that Kurt was in a negative state of mind. He spent the day talking to counselors about his drug problems and personal problems, and he also happily played with his daughter, Frances, as well. So the following night, Kurt walked outside to have a cigarette, and he decided that he would climb over the six-foot-high fence to leave the facility and never return. He took a taxi to the Los Angeles airport LAX and flew back to Seattle. So on the following days, on April the 2nd and April the 3rd, Kurt was spotted in numerous locations around Seattle. On April 3rd, Courtney hired private investigator Tom Grant to find Kurt, but he was not seen. On April the 7th, rumors that Nirvana was breaking up and of Kurt's whereabouts, Nirvana pulled out of the Lollapalooza festival that year in 94. And the following day on April 8th, Kurt's body was discovered in his house by electrician Gary Smith, who had arrived to install a security camera at their house. Apart from a small amount of blood coming out of Kurt's ear, the electrician reported no visible signs of trauma and initially believed that Kurt was just sleeping until he saw the shotgun pointed at his chin. There was a suicide note that was found, that we know of, of course, and a high concentration of heroin and traces of diazepam 
were found in his body. And of course, he died at 27 years old. And the coroners reported that his date of death was estimated on April 5th. And then last but certainly not least, I'm going to be talking about Amy Winehouse. She was born September 14th, 1983 and died July 23rd, 2011. Of course, she is a very prolific English songwriter and singer. She kind of is known for her deep voice and her eclectic mix of genres, mostly including soul, R&B, and jazz. Her father, Mitchell, was a window panel installer and taxi driver, and her mother, Janice, was a pharmacist. After toying around with her brother Alex's guitar, Amy bought her own when she was 14 and began writing music shortly afterwards. In July 2000, she became the featured female vocalist with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Her best friend, soul singer Tyler James, sent her demo tape to someone who was kind of in the midst of A&R records. Her debut album, Frank, was released on October the 20th, 2003, and this album received critical acclaim with compliments given to the cool, critical gaze in its lyrics. Amy's voice was compared to those of Sarah Vaughn and Macy Gray, among others. The album was nominated for the Brit Awards in the categories of British Female Solo Artist and British Urban Act, and it went to achieve platinum status. In May 2006, Amy's demo tracks, such as You Know I'm No Good and Rehab, appeared on Mark Ronson's New York radio show. And then she began working on promotion for her album Back to Black, which began in early October 2006. Back to Black was released in the UK on October the 30th, and it went to number one in the UK albums charts. In the US, it entered at number seven in the Billboard 200. It was the best selling album in the UK of 2007. The song Rehab reached to the top 10 in the UK and the US, and Time Magazine named Rehab as the best song in 2007. So she went on to make so much more music. She went on to receive a lot of accolades and awards for her music, her voice. Her albums would win like album of the year. Like it was just craziness. But her life was plagued with a lot of battles and substance abuse issues. So, in 2005, she went through a period of drinking, heavy drug use, and weight loss. Like, she would be very, very, very anorexic, very skinny. People who saw her during the end of that year in early 2005 and in 2006 reported a rebound that coincided with the writing of her album Back to Black. Her family believes that the mid-2006 death of her grandmother set her off into addiction strongly. In August of 2007, Amy canceled a number of shows in the UK and Europe, citing exhaustion and ill health. She was hospitalized during this period for what was reported as an overdose of heroin, ecstasy, cocaine, and ketamine and alcohol. And in a lot of interviews throughout her life, she admitted to having problems with self-harm, depression, and eating disorders. And this would all come to a head on her death. Amy's bodyguard said that he had arrived at her house three days before her death and felt that she had been somewhat drunk. He observed more moderate drinking over the next few days from her and said that she began laughing, listening to music, and watching TV at 2 in the morning the day of her death. At 10 a.m. on July 23, 2011, he observed her lying on her bed and tried to unsuccessfully get her to wake up, but she wasn't waking up. 
He didn't immediately, though, think that this was strange because she apparently slept very late out after she had a very, like, crazy, hectic night out of, like, drinking, partying, drugging, you know, all that stuff. So he wasn't immediately suspicious. He checked on her shortly after at 3 p.m. and observed her in the same position that he left her in. So he was very suspicious of this now, that she wasn't moving again. So he concluded that she was not breathing and had no pulse. And so he then called 911 and at 3.54 p.m., two ambulances were called to Amy's house in Camden. Amy was pronounced dead at the scene at age 27. After her death, the singer broke her second Guinness World Record for the most songs by a woman to simultaneously appear on the UK singles chart with eight songs. Crazy. So... The coroner report stated that her death was due to misadventure, basically an accident. The report released on October 26, 2011 explained that Amy's blood alcohol content was more than five times the legal limit. There was a probe into her death the following year to kind of figure out more information, but in 2013, the inquest basically reported that she died of accidental alcohol poisoning. So... We kind of knew this already, but they wanted to see if more information could come from it. There wasn't any. Um, But that is basically the 27 Club and some of its members in a nutshell. Some other people, though, that I kind of wanted to just like glaze over just a smidge just to give more information and give more people in this list. So Ron McKernan, who was the founding member, keyboardist and singer for The Grateful Dead, He died on March 8, 1973, due to a gastrointestinal hemorrhage associated with alcoholism. And Dave Alexander, who was the bassist of the Stooges, he died on February 10, 1975, of a pulmonary edema. Pete Ham, who was the keyboardist and guitarist and leader of Badfinger, died on April 24, 1975, by suicide. I talked about him and Badfinger in an episode as well, if you want to hear more information on that. So this is a bit of an obscure one, but a cool bit of uh, information, I suppose. Dee Boone, who was the guitarist and lead singer of the punk band Minutemen, they are most famous for doing the theme song to Jackass, if you're familiar with that. He passed away due to a traffic collision in his van, a uh, car accident. He passed away on December the 22nd, 1985. Pete DeFreitas, who was the drummer of Echo and the Bunnymen, he died on June 14, 1989 due to a traffic collision on his motorcycle. Kristen Paff, who was the bassist for the band Hole, who was Courtney Love's band, she died on June 16, 1994 due to a drug overdose, but her death is a bit of a conspiracy in itself. I might get into that if I do an episode on Kurt's death. It's very fascinating. And then lastly, Richie Edwards. I did an episode about his disappearance. He disappeared. People think it was a suicide attempt or that he just disappeared on his own. He was the lyricist. He was a guitarist for the Manic Street Preachers. And his um, date of death or date of disappearance was February the 1st, 1995. So that's basically it for the 27 Club. I hope that you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I've always been fascinated by the 27 Club. It's just very interesting and very, very iconic to the music scene. But again, a lot of people 
don't have to be musicians to be in the 27 Club, but a lot of them are just due to, again, the whole idea of fame and drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, like surrounded mental illness. It's all kind of embroiled in there. So I hope you guys enjoyed. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.